0: Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to begin today in verse 18. As you're going there, a few years ago, I took uh, this picture uh, on a Mother's Day of our, our little family. And don't they look cute, right? They do. And everyone looks right. Everyone looks good. and Everyone looks smiley. And it was... A happy, happy picture. There's another picture that we took. Can we show that one? That picture. We're not quite, everyone is happy. Not everyone's looking at the camera. Not everyone is quite smiling uh, the way that we might want them to. Uh, Not everything in in the world is uh, is always sunshine and rainbows, right? Uh, These two pictures in a very limited way, albeit, Uh, are an analogy for the ups and downs of our lives, of our days, of our moments, of our moments, of our, our minutes, we might even say, but also of our faith. Oftentimes, we only remember the ups, or we only remember the downs. We only remember the rainbows, or we only remember the shadows. But in reality, our lives, our days, our faith are a mixture of both. Last week in our study of the book of Genesis, we saw how Noah emerged from the ark onto the earth, the earth that was brought out of the waters to begin a new beginning, to start anew on this new earth. We saw how Noah stands as a second Adam in the recreation or the restoration of the world's. The beginning of the flood was the de-creation. The second part was the recreation, And now we have a new beginning as Noah and his family begin to live on this new earth. And though Noah was righteous, that's what the Bible tells us about him. It tells us that, that he was blameless. Just like Adam, Noah too would stumble into sin. Our passage this morning begins in chapter 9 and goes through chapter 10 and it serves both as a postscript of the fall of the flood concluding the flood and a record of the repopulating of the earth which we'll see in chapter 10. Warren Weir'sby outlines this section with three words and we're going to borrow those three words for our outline this morning. Tragedy, prophecy, and legacy. We begin with tragedy, of course, as we read verse 18 again. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, and these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. From these three, the, whole, the, the, the peoples of the Earth were, were, um, were dispersed. So from these three came the, the, re, the remultiplication, uh, or the repopulation of the Earth. This was, of course, in response to God's command, both in the garden and after the ark, which was to be fruitful and to multiply. And that's exactly what Noah's sons begin to do. This narrative came right after the flood. But some years have clearly elapsed in order for a vineyard to grow, as we'll see in the next uh, verse, and for to, to Ham uh, to have children. So these events in Noah's life, though are immediately after one another in the text, would have been separated by uh, many years. Nevertheless, on to verse 20, and Noah began to be a man of the soil, that means he was a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Verse 21, and he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, you remember a few weeks ago, we talked all about Noah as this great man of faith, this man who was obedient to God's word, this man who we already said was righteous in God's eyes, blameless in the eyes of his fellow men. And yet here, he is now described as a a, a drunken disgrace, who is lying naked in his own tent. So from the heights, right? From the heights of obedience, from the the heights of offering a sacrifice to God that God smells and is pleased by, to now here being passed out from intoxication. What what a sight, what a fall, we might even say. Clearly, we understand that, that wine was involved Wine itself is not condemned in the Bible. However, drunkenness certainly is. And that's what we find here in Genesis chapter 9. Not that Noah drank wine, but that Noah was drunk with the wine. Proverbs 20, Proverbs 23 all indicate this prohibition on drunkenness. Drunkenness often leads to disgrace in places like Habakkuk 2, in Lamentation 4, Genesis chapter 19, we see how those two things do go hand in hand. In a few months, we're going to read Genesis chapter 19, and we're going to learn about Lot and his daughters, and how alcohol was involved, how drunkenness was involved in that situation. The indication here in verse 21 is, as Noah lay drunk, Uncovered that he himself uncovered himself. That he uncovered himself and was then covered with shame. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says God never allows his children to sin successfully. There's always a consequence. There's always a consequence. Not long after the flood that destroyed the earth. Clearly though, it did not destroy sin. right? As we can see here. Instead, sin continued to be alive and well in the hearts of the people as it is today. Sin had conquered Noah. Here's mighty Noah, faithful Noah, and yet sin has conquered Noah. Sin was crouching at the door for Noah as it was for Cain in chapter four and is for you and for me. Sin lies at the door for you and me too. Its desire is to master you. Its desire is to to cause us To sin. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us the devil is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's been said that Satan will come as a serpent, and if that doesn't work, he'll come as a lion. If the actions of Noah tell us anything, it tells us that we are never too old to fail. We're never too old to fail. No, no one is safe. We we all must be on guard. If you think about Noah, in, in the intensity of building the ark, with, with God giving him verbal commands to build the ark and instructions on how to do it, how faithful he was in those moments. When, when things were the hottest, when things were the most serious, we might say, when he was really on the clock, right, he was obedient. And now in the, his later years, after the intensity of, of the ark and the flood had dissipated, now he's alone, now he's in his tents, and now he is drunk. The immediate application, we might look at this and say, man, look at the dangers of alcohol. And that's certainly true. We can make that application. However, we would also want to say this, that we can make a mess of our lives in a lot other ways too. That alcohol is not the only vice by which we can destroy our, our life or our testimony or fall into sin with vices that may even seem respectable. It may not even be prohibited necessarily uh, for us. We must be on guard. We must know our tendencies. We must know our weaknesses. We must pray for grace. We must make it, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, make it our aim to please God. That's the aim, right? That's the aim of the Christian that ought to have been the aim of Noah and was for some time, but in this moment, We see him fall, tragically fall. Well, Noah was not alone in his disgrace. Look at verse twenty-two. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you might be familiar. There's a lot of ideas about what that means. There's a lot of people who want to make some some ideas about what Cain did. Excuse me, what Ham did or did not do. Uh, There are a lot of theories. Um, and a lot of conjecture without a lot of uh, data to support it. Here's what we know. Cain, why do I keep saying Cain? Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. That's what we know. We know that he saw and that he told. Those are the things that we know. Was it an accident? Did he knock on the tent door? And Noah didn't respond and he walked in and oops, or did he intentionally go in? Uh, did he take pleasure somehow in seeing his dad in that kind of condition and then go out and, and proudly tell his brothers so as to shame his father? We, we don't know. We don't know those things. We don't know for sure. But what we can know is instead of covering his, his father's shame and honoring him, he further uncovered his nakedness by shaming him. That by telling his brothers the telling of the brothers was further shame upon Noah. He could have seen something and not told anybody about, but anyone about it, but he chose to tell his brothers. The contrast between what, Ham did, and what the other two brothers do in the next verse tells us that whatever Ham did was disrespectful and it was dishonoring to Noah. So let's look at verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. So instead of heaping more shame upon Noah, These two sons covered him with a garment, and in so doing, they covered his shame. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 says this, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. These two sons acted not in order to get love from their father, not in order to to get something for themselves, but because they loved their father. And as these two brothers covered their father's sin, we might consider this morning how we might cover others' sins. How we might, how we might in love, cover the sin of others. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, tells us that love, in fact, covers a multitude of sins. Our love does not cleanse sin, only Jesus does that. Our, our true love does not condone sin. There are sins that need to be confronted. There, there is a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between saying I'm covering someone's sin and I'm, I'm refusing to confront or I'm, I'm refusing to deal with it. Now, one pastor gives four guidelines to know the difference, and we can put them into four questions. And they might go like this: is, is this immaturity and defiance? If it's immaturity, then, then maybe we can cover the offense. It's someone who's growing. They don't quite know what they're doing. If it's defiance, if they know what they're doing, this sin, then maybe it's something that needs to be confronted. Does this offender, does this offense hinder your relationship with that person? If it's not an offense that you can overlook, if it's not an offense that you can cover, then it may be time to confront. Thirdly, do you have an adequate relationship in order to confront? Not everybody should be confronting everybody because you don't have the relationship with everybody to confront everybody. We are not the policemen of every person. We're not the judge and jury of every person. However, if you have a relationship with someone to confront them, then you ought to do so. Fourthly, is this a minor flaw that just grates me? Is this something that is just annoying? Is this a personality defect? Or is this a character defect? Or is there actually a sin here that's hindering the growth of this person in Christ? These are all things to take into consideration of whether or not we cover or confront. But in the end, this idea of, of covering or this idea of confronting all seeks the restoration or should seek the restoration of the one who has sinned. That's the goal. The goal is God's glory in the restoration of a brother who is sinning. Again, we're not policemen. We're not judges of every person. Galatians chapter 6 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The implication here is that you actually know that they're caught in a transgression. So you, you, you've seen it. Can't, can't address what you don't know. Brother, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the, that's the heart. That's the intention. And what, what Ham refused to do or was unwilling to do or did not do, we see Shem and Japheth willing to cover, willing to love their father even in his sin. Well, following the incident, Noah woke up. He woke up from his drunkenness and he spoke. And verses 24 through 28 are the only record of Noah speaking in all of the Bible. And here he describes the future of his sons. He describes the future of his grandson, Canaan, uh, the son of Ham. Uh, that's where he begins. Look at verse 24. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. How he knew? I don't know, maybe he had a garment over him. How did that garment get here? Who knows? There, there could have been lots of things. Verse 25, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, the son, the servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Now, if you're following along in the text, you might say to yourself, wait a second, cursed be Canaan. I thought Ham was the one who did whatever he did. And you would be right. Ham is the one, that the Bible tells us, did whatever he did. Why would it not be on Ham? There's, as you can imagine, many ideas about this as well. One idea is that Ham actually was involved in this in some way, shape, or form. Somehow he was, Canaan was involved somehow in Ham's sin in some way. Therefore, he was being judged. This also could be what one writer calls um, justice retributed to the, the next generation? Uh, there are a lot of questions, but one theologian named Kent Hughes suggests that what's actually happening here is that Noah is doing something that we'll see at the end of the book of Genesis. As Jacob was, going, was dying, he blessed his children and he predicted certain things about their life. He, he saw or he discerned something. And so what Noah may be doing here is discerning the character of his sons and prophesying and predicting their future. The future here, not just of Ham, but of this specific grandson, Canaan. So here, what is the curse? The curse is the enslavement to his brothers, enslavement to Shem and to Japheth, which as the Bible unfolds, we learn about the descendants of Cain. They're called the Canaanites. And you might remember a few things about them. They weren't particularly a good people. And they actually were antagonistic towards the, the children of Israel. They had conflict with the children of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we find that there's judgment that is sent down or comes to the Canaanites. So the first prophecy starts with Cain. The second part of the prophecy is, is a blessing. It's a blessing directed at Shem and Japheth. Look at verse 26. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So the first blessing is directed at Shem, but it's not actually to Shem, is it? It's actually to the the God of Shem. The Lord, the God of Shem. Noah is using uh, the word for God here, the Lord, which there's another word for God that could be used, but he's using the covenant name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. That's the word Yahweh in the Greek. This may indicate that that Shem already had a covenantal relationship with Yahweh, with God, which would have been the highest blessing already. In in chapter 11, we'll see this in, in the weeks to come, We find out that from the line of Shem comes Abraham. And so what may be happening here is there may be a connection that is being made between Shem and Abraham. That this blessing is looking forward to the Abrahamic covenant that will come in chapter 12. Well, thirdly, he speaks to Japheth. Japheth's blessing was that his family would increase and enlarge, encompassing vast portions of land. And we'll see that in chapter 10. You also will enjoy the the blessings of Shem. Chapter 9 concludes, you can look at it in verse 28, with this. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. You might remember that three-word refrain from back in chapter 5. In the genealogy that we looked at, where we saw over and over again repeated, Andy died, Andy died. At the end of chapter five, it begins to tell us about Noah, but it never says about Noah dying. Interrupted from that genealogy is the flood narrative, and now Noah, Moses is getting back to Noah and the rest of his life, and there he concludes that Noah lived this long, and he died. He lived a long life, 950 years. Even after the flood, he lived 350 years. Even after his fall, he lived an unknown amount of years. Noah's sin here that is recorded does not indicate to us that Noah never walked with God again. That's not the indication. It does not indicate to us that he fell away from the Lord, and he never loved God again. Based on Noah's, uh, Noah's inclusion in Hebrews chapter 11, which tells us that he lived by faith, we can believe and conclude that Noah recovered from his sin through repentance, of course, and began again to walk with God. Now, the Christian life is not a straight line. You know this. By any experience of, uh, that you have had, you know this. It has peaks and it has valleys. It has highs and it has lows. as obedience and as has sin. It has victories and defeats. Why? Because we are not perfect. If we were perfected, then, then we would have only peaks, right? We would have no valleys. And yet sin still exists and we still fall. Now this doesn't justify or excuse our sin, but it is to recognize that we are all in process. Alexander White writes this The the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Why is it a series of new beginnings? Because we fall and have to start again. But our sins are not the end of our story. They're not the end of our story, but rather lead to new beginnings, lead to a new start. The issue for the Christian then is how will you deal with your sin? It's not if you will sin. We're all going to sin. How will you deal with your sin? What will you do? Will you repent? Will you confess that sin? Will you seek by God's grace to forsake that sin and walk walk in obedience to God's command? Well, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. We saw that before. God saved him. And yet clearly from the text in chapter nine, Noah is not the promised seed. Right? We can all agree that he is not the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is not the promised one that that God had promised. Clearly, he's not it. He's not the hope of the nations. He's not the hope of the world. He was used by God to save humanity in, in the ark, yes, but he is not the one who would crush the head of the serpent. But it was from his line that that seed would eventually come. It was through Shem that that seed would actually one day come. But until then, humanity continued to increase. And in chapter 10, we see this legacy of Noah as this list of some 70 nations is compiled in 32 verses. This chapter is called the table of nations or the descendants of Noah's sons. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not to say that there are only 70 descendants between these three uh, three men. But this is a curated or a constructed list by Moses. And the number 70 has relevance in the Bible. And and it is the number of completion or of totality. This is not a typical genealogy in some of the genealogies we've, we've seen before. We might know, see some of that. There's some form that changes throughout. But Moses' point, and this is what we don't want to miss in any of the genealogies. What's the point? What's the point of these texts when we don't really understand why they're there? Who really cares about all these names? None of us really care about all these names. Why is this there? Why would Moses even bother with this? He's giving to us a record. He's giving to us to an account. He's giving to us a way in which the seed is preserved, and he's communicating to us the, the repopulation of the earth. He's, he's communicating to us or describing what we could call the repeopling of the world. And how did that happen? How did all these people get back on the earth? It was through Noah's sons. Look at it in verse 1. And these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. These are the sons that were born after the flood. And he goes on to list all of these things. But what we come to understand is all that follows, all that follows are the descendants from one man. From one man. That's the point. That what follows is the, the descendants of Noah. His sons and then their sons. What that tells us is that there's actually only one race. There's only one blood. It's the human race. And that God is the the creator of that race. There are not actually multiple races. Not in the purest sense of the word. There's one race. There's one race. the, The human race. Now there are many differences, of course. There are ethnicities and cultures and language, of course. And we'll see that. And we have seen it, and we experience it, but only one blood. Back in chapter 9, verse 19, it says, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Or a footnote in my Bible says, from these the whole earth was populated. You come to the New Testament in Acts chapter 17, and Paul says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. John MacArthur writes, all physical characteristics of the whole world race were present in the genetics of Noah, his sons, and their wives. How that exactly works? I have no idea, but that's the reality. There was one man, he had three sons, and from that, humanity came back onto the planets one race and one blood. And what does that mean? That means there's no place there is no place for the mistreatment, the disdain of any other people group based upon their ethnicity, their color, their language, etc., etc., etc. We are one blood. One blood. You know, one day We're going to go into the kingdom, and it's not going to be everybody that looks just like you and me, or everyone that looks like you. There's going to be a diversity. Yes, all one in Christ, but a diversity. We can see that in the book of Revelation. For our time in chapter 10, um, and for my limited ability of pronunciation, we will not read each verse here. But, (laughs) thank you. No, I should be applauding. Yes. But I will point out some notable names as we go along. In the list, we find that Moses does not avoid some of the less um, positive parts of his family tree, of this family history. And let's be honest. Some of our branches of our family trees are not quite as healthy as other branches, right? And yet... We're going to read through some of this stuff and some of the stuff that maybe we would rather not be recorded about our family or, or who came before us. Nevertheless, uh, Moses begins with the sons of Japheth in verses 2 through 5. Uh, these are the descendants of the, ans- or the, his descendants were the ancestors of the Gentile nations who encompassed the lands to the north and west of Canaan. Here's a, a, a little map to kind of help us see where those were located. So Japheth kind of to the north and uh, surrounding areas there. We would think of this uh, more towards the direction of of Europe. And we can see that list uh, there in verses 2 through 4. Secondly, Moses uh, records the the sons of of Ham in verses 6 through 12. Ham's descendants were located in what we now think of as modern-day Egypt, Palestine, the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, so towards Africa. We can notice that some of these names are also names of places, such as Egypt, for instance. Um, They were founders of these particular groups, and therefore they were, uh, that's the name. Uh, Verses 8 through 12, Moses records a, a story or some content about a man named Nimrod, Nimrod, and we won't spend time on that this morning. But, but that points us to the next chapter uh, of Genesis, so we'll look at that more uh, next week. Uh, you can see also here in verse 19 uh, that two notable names appear in the middle of that verse: Sodom and Gomorrah. That Sodom and Gomorrah are in the line or in the the, the descendants of uh, Ham, which. Considering what we know about Ham and Canaan, this seems quite appropriate. Well, finally, we get to Shem in verses 21 through 32, and the descendants of Shem lived east of Babylonia, so more as we might think of as Asia. Shem was the father of the, the Semites, Semites, which might give us a little clue here where we're going, uh, Israel, the Israelites, or the Hebrews, as we can see in verse 21, Shem also fathered all the children of Eber. Eber is the, the Hebrew word that where we get he, Hebrew. <laughs> That's the Hebrew word for Hebrews uh, or the Israelites. It is from the line of Shem that Abraham would come, that David would come, and ultimately the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, you look just at verse 25. You can see there in the middle of verse 25, it says, For in his days... He's talking about the sons of of Shem there. But in his days, the earth was divided. And then look down to verse uh, 25. Uh, Excuse me, not verse 25. Look down to verse uh, 32. And these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Uh, Moses is telling us about what occurred. Uh, but this, those two statements would have been what occurred after the Tower of, of Babel. So what we come to find out in chapter 11 is that they didn't spread out. They actually aren't scattered. They weren't dispersed around the whole earth. They actually grouped up with one language. So all this idea of clans and languages and nations is something that didn't take place before the the Tower of Babel, but after the Tower of Babel. So this is uh, not a chronological accounting uh, of the whole book. It's a a stamp in time of this history. And then we get into uh, certain things throughout the genealogy, if that makes sense. But as we conclude... Uh, or as we consider the tragedy of Noah and his family uh, after this, this you know, great rescue from the ark. What, what a great story, the flood, right? I mean, what, what a, I mean, a hallmark story. We, we're left with such um, hope. We're left with such positive uh, sense of, of what God is doing, rescuing the earth, saving Noah, that there's hope for the earth. After all of this, we, we come to this really tragic moment in the life of Noah. And I want to close not, not by considering so much the tragedy of, of Noah or looking at Noah or looking at his sons, but actually looking how this points us to Christ. Because actually embedded in the story is actually a story of grace. It is a story of, of generosity, and which points us to a greater grace and a greater generosity. In fact, God's grace is not only seen It's not only seen in the blessings of the rainbows. When when do you hear people talk about being blessed? When things are good. But God's grace is not only seen in the blessings of the rainbow, but there is grace in the shadows. There's grace in the the shadow of our tragic sin. Uh, Look back to chapter 9, verse 23. We just read about what happened with Ham. Verse 23 tells us what happens with Shem and Japheth and how they laid the garments on their shoulders and walked backward covering the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now earlier in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 21, God is expelling Adam and Eve from the garden for their sin. But before he he casts them out of the garden, he does something very important. He covers them. With animal skins. God covered Adam and Eve. Here, Noah's sons are covering him. What does this tell us? It tells us that love covers. These two, maybe uh, ordinary acts, maybe things that we might just read past in our Bible reading, are acts of love that point ultimately to another covering, a greater covering, the ultimate covering for our sin. Not made by animal skins or a garment, but through Christ as he stretched out his love on the cross, taking on himself our sin, covering our sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away, covers the sin of the world. That's love. That's the blessing, the blessing of God that you and I can receive The Apostle Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 4, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. What's the blessing of God to us? That our sins can be covered. It's not that we'll never sin. It's not that we have to be perfect. It's not that somehow I can can live a good enough life for God. That's no hope. That's weight. That's duty. We, We can't hold that. What is the hope? What is the blessing? What is the grace? What is the generosity that God has covered us through Christ? And the question this morning I have for you is, are you covered? Do you know your sins are covered? The Apostle Paul tells us how that works. Reformer Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we, who are sinners, I'll add, might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. We, who are sinners, receive the righteousness of Christ as Christ, who is righteous, takes our sin. It's the most unfair exchange ever. If you think that doesn't seem fair, you're right. It isn't fair. It's grace. It's always grace. These coverings point to a greater covering. In Christ, our sins can be covered, they can be forgiven. And the invitation for you is to come to the one who can cover your sin, to know the blessing of sins being forgiven. And you're standing with God now accepted, not because of your works, but because of the righteousness of Christ given to you by faith. Thanks be to God that there is a Redeemer who has come into our tragedy in order to give us hope. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful today for Jesus, the one who stretched out his love who covered our shame, who covered our guilt, who covered our sin in order that we could be made acceptable to you. God, we understand that that works as we come to you in repentance and faith, recognizing that our sins need to be covered, recognizing that we are a sinner. And in faith, asking for you to save us. I pray today, if there's anyone here who has yet to come to Christ for the salvation of which he offers, that they would come today, repenting and believing and receiving the blessing of new life in the hope that their sins are covered. For those who have been covered, for those who know this morning that their sins are forgiven, may we live with a renewed sense of joy of who we are in Christ. And may we extend that same love to one another. Would you help us to do it? And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.